first went back to Texas, that was back in the 90s, and they still had these things they called uh, telephone books. You guys remember those? Um, I don't know that anybody still has those. But I remember, I knew I was in a different place because when I opened up the yellow pages, there were two sections that you didn't see in Hawaii telephone books. There was a whole section in the, in the, in the yellow pages on barbecue restaurants. And like, we're talking dozens of them. There were so many Texas barbecue restaurants that they had to have its own section of yellow pages. I think in Hawaii, there's only two, and they both just opened in the last couple of years, which makes Hawaii better. There's a few things that I miss about Texas, and one of them is Texas barbecue. But the other thing was this whole section, pages and pages, on foundation repair. Foundation repair. And again, we have some foundation issues here in Hawaii, but nothing like Texas, especially North Texas, where we were, because the soil was this clay soil. And as the temperature changed, the soil would expand and contract. And it, you know, if you didn't have a good foundation in your house, your house would start to would start to crack. And, and so what had happened there, uh, happened here, happened there, where you know, people were trying to cut costs of, of housing. And so one of the places they tried to cut the cost was by making the foundation only 18 inches rather than uh, 24 inches. Well, at one point I needed that foundation repair. We, we, we had bought a house and I was a student there. We bought a house there and we didn't know, you know there was a problem. Um, until after we lived there for a couple years and you start seeing these, these cracks appear. And every house gets cracks, but these were more serious cracks and you could see them in the brick outside and everything. So we called the foundation repair uh, companies to come and fortunately we caught ours early enough. But there's a lot of people, they, they wait too long. They see the cracks, but you know, they don't, either don't know what it is or they think they can keep putting it off but they wait too long and pretty soon it's, it's for some houses it costs more to fix the foundation than it does to i mean than the house is worth you can we can we're talking 30 40 50,000 just to repair a foundation on houses that may only be you know 60 70,000 it's texas not hawaii 60 70,000 gets you like a porta potty um, somewhere on the corner here, but we're talking Texas, you know, different world. In fact, if, if someone were going to, you know, sell you a house, a new house, and say, hey, uh, you know, I'm, you know this, these are all the features, and you didn't actually pay attention to the foundation, that would be, doesn't matter what the features are. You, you can have the greatest, the greatest features that you can imagine in a house, but if the foundation is not going to be what's required, that, that house is, is just going to fall apart at some point. Well, interesting about this idea of a foundation when we think about a healthy church. We've been talking about healthy churches for since September of last year, so it's been a while. And, and we've been talking about you know what a healthy church is, and we're and we're trying to trying to look at you know really getting back to the heart of what a healthy church is, and and you wonder like why do 
why do churches forget this? Why do they lose it? Well, I think it's the same reason that when sometimes when we buy a house, we might not ask about the foundation. We go into the house and we look at the space or we look at the amenities, we look at you know different things, but we don't necessarily look at the foundation. Well, sometimes churches get caught up in in all the things they care about, the building, or they care about the programs, or they care about, you know, the different things that, that we do, or what we look like, or what we sound like, what, what songs are we singing, and, and all of that. And they think about all of those things, but they don't ask the question about the foundation. There's a lot of people that will, that will join a church, or they'll start going to a church and, and say, that's the church I want to go to. And you ask them, why do you, why do you go to that church? And they rarely give you an answer about the foundation of the church. Instead, they'll give you some other reason. My kids like it. You know, they got a really good youth program. Or, you know, the music is good. Or, you know, the preacher, he's, he's bald and he's really handsome. You know, there, there are all these reasons that people come to churches and go to churches. And, and they never ask about the foundation. What is this church founded on? What I like about what we've been doing with this Healthy Church series is, as I've told you guys before, no secrets. I'm telling you what I believe the Bible teaches us that a church is, that a healthy church is. I'm telling you that as long as I'm pastor of this church, this is what I want our church to continue to move towards. Being up front, and you can go back, and go back to September, go to our, on our website, and you can, you can listen to the sermons. You can go back and, and see this. You can go back and read through the Romans 12 and, and the Sermon on the Mount and, and get an idea of what we're talking about. And what I want to do today as we look at the last part of the Sermon on the Mount, the last part of the Sermon on the Mount Jesus gives this illustration that, again, we, we tend to misunderstand it because we tend to think of it in terms of our individual lives. But he's actually saying the importance of the foundation, how crucial a foundation is to a church. That if you get this wrong, it doesn't matter what everything looks like. It's eventually going to fall apart. And this has always been important, but it's never been more important than in the culture that we live in today. Not because the culture today is any worse than cultures before, or not because it's any better, but the fact that the culture is constantly changing. Back when you know, I first started thinking about culture and things like that, you know, I was told that that, that our American culture goes through major, what they call paradigm shifts, which is completely different ways that we think about things. And it happens every 18 months. And I used to think about this from, from a church perspective. You know, a lot of churches, you know, they take 18 months to decide to form a committee to study something for another 18 months about the thing that was three years prior. That's why a lot of churches were slow to really understand what's happening in their culture. But think about that. That was 20 years ago. Major paradigm shifts in our culture every 18 months. 
You might go like, ah, I, I don't get it. I, 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 there's no difference. I live in the same house. I go to the store and I do all these other things. I mean, my life is pretty much the same. We're not talking about your life. <laughs> We're talking about culture as a whole. It's constantly changing. And what happens sometimes is, not just churches, but a lot of times in, when I was in education, education is famous for this, whatever the latest trend is, everybody wants to jump on that trend. And then a new trend comes along. And churches get caught up in the same thing, where they're jumping from trend to trend. And the trends aren't necessarily wrong, but they're not helpful if there's not a firm foundation. If you have a firm foundation, then you can actually kind of navigate the change. You can even adapt a lot of what you do because you have a firm foundation. Jesus is saying this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I remember singing the song when I was in Sunday school. I don't know if they still sing it, about the wise man built his house upon the rock. Didn't really understand it, but I did know if I ever bought a house, I wouldn't build it on sand. So at least I got something out of it. But if we, if we look at what Jesus is saying, if we take the picture of what he's saying, it's not hard to figure out what he's talking about. When he talks about the rock, building on the rock, building on sure ground, a sure foundation, he tells us, you hear these words of mine, Hear these words of mine and do them. Don't just hear them and don't just do them. These words. These words. And what is he talking? In the immediate context, he's talking about this entire sermon, the thing we've spent the the first part of this year going over. These words should be the foundation, not just of your Christian life. They should be the foundation of your church. These words. It's one of the reasons I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the sermons. Not because I think I did a great job. No, I want you to listen to them because those words, those words are the foundation. These words. You see, what happens a lot of times is people like to hide behind Jesus. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. They'll say like, you know, Jesus is the foundation of our church. Jesus is the center of our church. Jesus is the cornerstone of our church. So, that's what I got. 
What do you got? And you know, there's nothing wrong with those statements, except this. One, what do you mean by that? What do you mean Jesus is the foundation? Jesus is the center. Jesus is the cornerstone. Do you really understand what that means? Or do you just say that so you don't have to deal with what the Bible actually says? Because the other problem with this is that Jesus doesn't say, I'm the rock. He's saying, these words are the rock. We don't get to hide behind some ambiguous understanding of of Jesus. We have to deal with his words. A lot of people are cool with Jesus. They love baby Jesus at Christmas because baby Jesus doesn't, doesn't do anything. Just hangs out. Baby Jesus. People like teacher Jesus because teacher Jesus never seems to be, be you know, having any rules. He just says, hey, guys, love one another. It's cool. They love teacher Jesus. Oh, and people like Savior Jesus. They like Jesus dying on the cross and saving them. But Jesus is saying, no, it's not some vague, ambiguous concept of Jesus. These words. These words. And so we don't have time to go back and and go over all of these words. But just to kind of summarize this for us, what is, he, what is he saying, these words, these words from this sermon, this Sermon on the Mount? How are they the rock? And I think they become the rock for our lives, which means that we should study them. We should read them. We should reread them. We should talk about it. We should discuss it. We should ask ourselves this question. Are we doing these words? First of all, do we understand these words? That's, the, that's a big deal. A lot of people think like that you know, the Bible is the authority. The Bible is the authority. But it's the Bible properly interpreted. Properly interpreted doesn't mean you get to read the Bible and just decide what it means. It's the Bible properly interpreted. So we need to study. We need to discuss. We need to, we need to ask ourselves, once we understand what we believe the Bible is teaching, we need to ask ourselves, is this who we are? Are we at least on the path? Are we on the journey to this? God never tells us we have to, have to, have to be it. He says we've we got to want it and we've got to move in that direction. These words. You see, these words become the, the rock for our church. Because these words were, were this, this, these, these words that talked about what is a true disciple. And they're fundamental to a Christian community. You cannot have a healthy Christian community without doing the things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You can't. You might go like, hey. I've been going to church longer. You've been alive. And you know what? We did some of them, not all of them. And we're okay. We're still here. You know what I'm saying? I would say, I'm sad for you. Because you were never part of a healthy church. 
one of the deepest desires that all of us as Christians should have is to be part of a healthy church and to in fact want to be active in helping a healthy church be healthier. It's essential to a healthy church. But let me tell you something else that we don't always think about. We sometimes think about the church. We often think about how this is for ourselves. But this is more than that. What what Jesus is saying when he's describing the kingdom and he's describing how disciples live and think in the kingdom, he's he's in some ways communicating what God communicated earlier in, in the Old Testament. He's saying, this is the best way for human beings to live. This is the best way, not a possible way, not a good way, not one of many ways. It is the best way for human beings to live. If you want to have the most fulfilling life, not just for yourself, but for your community, if you want that to happen, this is the way you do it. You do it any other way, somebody's going to get left out. Somebody's going to get hurt. It's going to eventually break down or somebody's going to take over and force everybody to get along. It's the best way. Eric just finished the, st- the study on worldviews and, and one of the things that, that, that he, he talked about, he was, he was quoting from, from this book from the 19, late 1930s, early 1940s called Crisis of Our Age. And those of you who um, were alive in the late 30s, early 40s, or those of you who read it or learned about it in history class, you know what the most significant event in the world was going on at that time. It was the precursor to World War II. It was the rise of Nazi Germany. And you would think, crisis of our age, written in the late 1930s to the early 1940s, this must be about those Nazis. If it's not about the Nazis, it must be about the rise of of communism. It must be. And it's not. It was about what was happening, not just in the author's culture, but he saw happening around the world. That societies were moving away from being societies based on ideas. Ideas like belief in God. Ideas like like morality and absolute morality. Truth. Moving away from that to becoming more what, what he called sensate cultures. In other words, cultures that are much more about the practical, about right, what's going on right now. Here's the takeaway. When you look back in history, cultures that made the move from being cultures based on ideas to cultures based on the practical, the culture, once it became based on the practical, the culture died. You understand? You understand that as we, it's not just, oh, everybody can choose their own religion. It's not just, oh, okay, you know, Christianity's nice, and but, you know, I think we should be the kind of place where, where, you know, it's just, let's just 
make sure everybody's happy and let's not really care about ideas. Let's not talk anymore about the deeper things of life. Let's just leave those behind because you know what? It's just about living life. It's just about living and dying and in between, making sure you have a living, have some happiness, raise a family. That's all that life is about. Cultures that are like that die. And they die quickly. More is at stake, folks, than simply while I Baptist Church continuing. We've been placed at this space in this time for a reason. And it isn't just to live and to die. It isn't just to get a, you know, a merit badge for showing up. It's to be the church. And to show the world and show our community and show our society, this is what happens. This is the kind of community you can have. This is the kind of society you can have when you get a group of people who take God's word seriously and say, we will build our lives and we will build our church on the words of Jesus. It will last. You see, it's hard enough for us to do it. It's impossible for society to do it. The only reason we have hope is because because Christ promises to help us. And just let me let you know, as I've said many times, it's not easy. It's easier to give in to culture. It's easier to do the things that attract crowds and get people here for whatever reason. It's harder to say, we will build our church on this rock. It's harder. And what's going to make it even harder, and it's always been this way, we read about it all the way back in the New Testament, storms still come. You see, when I say storms, some of you immediately start thinking about, oh, there's that hurricane, those natural disasters, storms like that. No, not really talking about those. You might think like, well, you know, it's like, it's like people attacking the church. Right? It's like people trying to take away our religious freedoms. That's the storms. No, I'm not talking about that either. The reason I'm not talking about it is because that's not what the Bible talks about. When it's talking about the storms that will come, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, it's about every wind of doctrine that comes into the church, often by well-meaning people who come in and want to say, this is what we should believe. You see, if we're not built on the rock, it can sometimes sound kind of right, sound kind of Jesus, sound kind of Bible, and we're just going to go with it. The storms are going to come. The false teaching is going to come. You see, one of the ways I know I'm kind of on to something whenever I'm kind of studying God's word and things like that is when I know it's leading me to places I don't want to go. When it's asking me, asking of me things that I don't want to do and I don't want to change. See, when that happens, it's not the sure sign, but it's a good sign. 
that God is trying to work on those areas of my life. He's trying to work on those areas that, that really don't measure up to his word. Some of you know this. Some of you are thinkers. And you think about what, what the Bible says and you think about what culture says and, and you're caught. Because what culture is saying is good is increasingly coming into the clash with what, with what the Bible says is good. And you think about it. And you don't know. Do I go along with culture? Do I go along with my friends? Do I go along with family? Do I go along the way that's least resistance? Or do I say no? I will build on this rock. Words of Jesus. Even if it takes me to places that are hard. Well, if we look at this foundation real quickly, just in big broad strokes, you know, there's this Obviously, there's this faith in, in who God is. Faith that God is, is, is this all-powerful creator God. That he's the source of all truth. We, if we don't believe that about God, it's really kind of questionable why, why would he, we would even follow his word. But what has been talked about in the Sermon on the Mount can be summed up in two things. Two things that are this foundation. God's law and God's love. God's law and God's love. We have lots of songs about God's love. Love them. We just sang one. I will build this church or I'll build my life upon this love, upon your love. It's great. Not so many songs about law. I don't know. Just not you know, super like artsy, songy kind of a thing. But you have law and you have love. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has said on different occasions, first of all, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. I came so that, so that the law would be internal to you, not external to you. I want you to know the law. I want you to treasure the law. I want you to keep it. But... I want you to do it for the right reasons. I don't want you to do it so that everybody looks at you and thinks how holy you are. I don't want you to do it so you yourself just think about how holy you are. I want you to do it because God loves you and you love God and you couldn't think of anything better to do than to follow what he says. Law, keeping of the law becomes an expression expression of our love to God. You know, you've, you have, if you have had kids, we had, you know, we have our three daughters. And you know there's differences. And I won't tell you which is which. You can sort them out, those of you who know our daughters. But, you know, some of, you know, one of my daughters obeyed because she was just, I couldn't stand making a mistake. Even if it was something we, we told her, if she, if she made a mistake, she just felt terrible. Another daughter, she, she kept the rules 
basically because she was just trying to appease her parents. Like, uh, if I obey the rules, parents won't bother me. Another one obeyed because she didn't want to let her parents down. You know, I think about those three different approaches. Most of us are kind of a mix of that. But when it comes to God, we don't obey because we're perfectionists. We don't obey because we're afraid of God. We obey because we love him and we don't want to let him down. not just God's law, though. It's also God's love. And as we saw in, in the Sermon on the Mount, this is an impossible, impossible love. It is only possible because of what Jesus Christ does in us. It is an impossible love. It's a, it's a love that, that doesn't just love your friends. It doesn't just love your family. It doesn't just love strangers. It doesn't just love people who are hurt and who are weak. It loves all those people. But it also loves your enemies. And it doesn't just love your enemies when they're not hurting you. It loves your enemies while they are killing you. That to me is the highest expression of love that I can think of. If someone was trying to hurt me, after the fact, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah I forgive you. While you're hurting me, I'm not forgiving you. I don't love you. I just want you to stop. And I will do anything to make you stop. Jesus says, love your enemies. Paul will later say, bless your enemies. If you don't understand how radical that is, and if you don't understand that, that Jesus actually lives this out for us, that while he's hanging on the cross, while he's been beaten, spat upon, while he's being openly mocked before the world, he says, Father, forgive them. Not, Father, strike them down. Not, you know, Father, maybe not now, but later on, make sure they get theirs. Father, you think that's easy, if you think that's even possible on your own strength, I'd like to meet you. I'd like to meet you. It's impossible. We can't even get it right on the lower level. Loving your enemies? Okay, that's one thing. The lower level, that's like, loving your enemies is like, that's like a-level work, A-plus level work. Down here at B and C level, it's this. Just love each other. Love the other people who love me. Just love them. Can you at least do that? Can you at least love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Can you at least do that? That's not even the high standard. That's the, can you at least do that. As I've said before, I think a mark of spiritual maturity in each one of our lives, in our church as a whole, is, is our approach to reconciliation. 
How relentless are we about reconciliation? How do we work towards it? Or how often do we just say, eh, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to deal with it. Or the little bit better response, I tried. I tried to talk to them. They still were a jerk. Again, what does Jesus say? How many times do you got to talk to a jerk? How many times do you got to talk to them and, and try to help them and try to help your relationship? How many times? Seven times 70. You talk to a jerk 490 times, okay. You try to reconcile 490 times, okay. Then maybe you got a case. I don't think you're getting the point of the scripture, but at least you kept count. But the point is that we give up usually after one try. Sometimes not trying at all. We're to be relentless in our reconciliation. God's law, God's love, cannot be one or the other. A lot of Christians choose. A lot of Christians like to just talk about love. Because when you just talk about love, you can kind of let it mean whatever you want it to mean. You, you know, you can have a higher standard, lower standard. It can just be whatever. Some people just want to do a law because law is kind of easy. You got the exactly what to do. Okay, I'll do it. And if I don't do it right, I'll just ask, say I'm sorry and do my penance and move on. As Christians, it comes together. See, the firm foundation is this faith that we have in the person of God. And really, for us as Christians, it begins with faith in Jesus Christ. But this faith leads to obedience to the law of God. But it's not mere obedience. It's obedience that is an expression of God, of the love of God. It comes together. God's kingdom brings law and love together in the community of faith. Not one or the other. Not even one over the other. Somebody who keeps the law without love is no more a Christian than someone who just says, I'm going to love and ignore all of God's words. Through law and love together in our lives, we can encourage one another. We can comfort one another. We can find joy. But we can also confront one another and help each other. You see, it's not love to let someone continue on a path of self-destruction. That's not love. I don't know what that is, but it's not love. Love says, hey, stop. If I lived on a street and the bridge was out, and I knew the bridge was out, and I didn't love the drivers because I was kind of annoyed by them because they're loud and they speed and they honk. I'm not putting up signs, the bridge is out, because I don't love them. But if on my street is, is my neighbors and friends and family and people that I really care about, I really love, hey, I'm putting up signs. I might even stand out there and say, guys, bridge is out. But so many of us as Christians, we think that we show love by not confronting one another over sin. Just let them go. Oh, that's judging. 
that's not really what Jesus was talking about when he's talking about judging. Oh, that's awkward. Yeah, it's awkward. Oh, it's weird. Yeah, it's weird. That's hard. Yeah, it's hard. They might get mad at me. Oh, they will get mad at you. Nobody likes to be told. But everybody needs to be told. You see, if we live in this law and love, they, they, they help each other. Because I don't just apply the law, nor do I just have a vague understanding of love where I can let it be whatever I want it to be. Instead, anything about God's law, anything about his word, we do it in a spirit of grace. We do it in a community of grace. We do it with this idea that, that none of us is even close to who Jesus is. None of us should have any, any sense of being superior and vastly superior to others. That all of us are objects of grace. And all of us should be working together with each other to help each other become more like Jesus. That's what a healthy church is. That's what it means to build on the foundation. As I've said before, I don't say these things to say we're not these things. I say these things because it's what the Word of God is saying. And I think we do some of this, some of it well. I think we do some of it okay. And I think we don't really do some of it well at all. But if we're serious about being a healthy church, we need to have a foundation. And the foundation is, is on God's word. It cannot be law without love or love without law. So I just want to just end with a few questions. First of all, that we ask about, to our, about ourselves and about our church. Are we building a strong faith in God based on a deep knowledge of God? Not a strong faith with a shallow knowledge. Strong faith with a deep knowledge of God. Are we constantly trying to deepen our understanding of who God is, what his plan is, why, he, why he's placed us in this world? Are we trying to be obedient? Not perfectly obedient, but are we trying to be obedient? And do we deal with sin or do we instead ignore it or excuse it, whether it's in my life or in someone else's life? Is all that we do motivated by God's love? And does God's love show up in, in our readiness to reconcile, our willingness to forgive, and doing everything with the spirit of grace? Or do we sit around and just judge those who are different from us? Those who come from different socioeconomic classes or those who don't have our personality types because, you know, I was made in the image of God, so God must be just like me, right? So all you who are different, you need to be like me. Of course that's not true. But that's the attitude we give off when we see someone different and we look down on them because they're different. Are we continually seeking to understand God? Are we continually seeking to understand his word? Are we continually seeking to understand his will? Never satisfied. 
are we seeking to understand what the Bible actually teaches about what's right and wrong? Or are we just using our own definition or one that's been given to us? Fix the foundation. Foundation is the words of Jesus and the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount we're bringing together law and love. It has to be the foundation of our church. Churches face this problem. And some churches shows up in different ways. But oftentimes the two choices are this. There's, churches are either presenting the wrong picture of what the body of Christ is supposed to be. A distorted picture. One that's blurry. One that's not really what God intended. Or no picture at all. I think our task, if we use this picture analogy, is hopefully over time that as we, we know God's word, as we live his word, that that picture of God's kingdom becomes clearer and more in focus when people look at Wildlife Baptist Church. We're not perfect. We'll never be perfect. But we can always be people with a spirit of grace, with a desire to reconcile, and a deep desire to know and follow God's word.